Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Gentlemen, good to see you. Hello, good to see you, Chris. Doing, Chris. We have got a big deal brewing in the cosmetics industry. We've got big earnings from Disney, but we begin this week with a big loss from a big bank. JP Morgan Chase announced it lost $2 billion on a massive trading bet that went south. In a conference call on Thursday evening, CEO Jamie Dimon said the bank's strategy was, quote, flawed, complex, poorly reviewed, poorly executed, and poorly monitored. Other than that, James Early, <laughs> it sounds like everything just went fine. <laughs> I sure did, Chris. I'm searching for an analogy. Maybe it's something like somebody who just got his license back after a DWI getting caught with an open bottle in the car. I mean, it was only last year that, that J- Jamie Dimon was criticizing the Volcker Rule, uh, saying it would impinge on banks' ability to trade derivatives. And and we certainly wish it would have impinged on on J.P. Morgan's <laughs> ability here because this was a, a huge loss uh, for, for a single trade for a big bank. It's it's not a massively financially significant number. And I'll say this is a mark-to-market loss. In other words, it's not a cash loss, but it also means that it could still get worse. The position is still on. Ron? Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more as, as we get more information. Was this about proprietary trading or is it as, as what they say it is? It was really about a hedging strategy to help offset other aspects of their business, which which is, is a perfectly rational thing to do. However, was it you know not monitored as you said correctly? Was it ill ill devised the strategy? You know um, where are the parents here um, <laughs> watching yeah. what the children are doing? Uh, Joe Mager, the Wall Street Journal called this the rare black eye for Jamie Dimon. You actually listened in on the conference call. What'd you? I did. He sounded furious. Uh, he was absolutely upset that the company had made the mistake. He was upset with his employees. He sounded upset and disappointed with himself for not having better controls around that. But I do think that this is a one-time incident, and the market definitely isn't responding that way. The stock's off like 8%. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And that's something that we've had kind of pounded into our heads with financial stocks over the last few years. But at the same time, these guys do have great track record. And I think it's important to remember that Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan have done an excellent job of managing themselves through the financial crisis and do deserve some benefit of the doubt. James? Chris, I'll just add two things for perspective here. If you're listening, wondering, this sounds kind of complicated. First of all, J.P. Morgan is sort of like the godfather of derivatives of all the big banks. And the top five banks trade most of the derivatives. J.P. Morgan is really the biggest by far. But the second thing is, this is not just so much a directional bet. The way the markets work, especially in these in these weird th- uh, derivatives, is that you have people moving against you. And this was a, a bet, from what I'm reading, on, on a very illiquid index. And the, the trading volume was low, and, and other hedge funds sensed that J.P. Morgan had too big of a position. They couldn't get out quickly. So they began to trade against the bank. This is what happened with long-term capital management. This is a, a famous hedge fund years ago that blew up. Sure. And, and so, in other words, it wasn't just the raw bet, but, but it was sort of the, the parasitic action of the markets that also took this position down. Was this out of the London office? Is that in right? London, yeah. Is it, is it me, or does it seem like a lot of these seem to come from the London office? <laughs> the they, rogue trader, rogue yeah, trader. or the know, London Goldman's whale problem though. with the disgruntled employee? I believe was London. At Maybe least, it's something in the it, water. At least he got a good nickname out of it. Though, <laughs> yeah, that's you know? true. Uh, Simon Johnson, the economist uh, and uh, someone we've had as a guest on our show, uh, came out and said that the the buck stops with Jamie Dimon. He said, if this were a company like Boeing or Caterpillar. 
and one of those companies lost as much money relative to operations, the CEO would resign. Um, give me a break. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's ridiculous. They had this trade blow up on them, but they've coasted through the financial crisis better than anyone. They've come out much stronger. It was a big mistake, and people should be held accountable, but it's not something to resign over, over right. the track record and the success that he's had. But, but that is what makes the case for bank regulation so strong, that even the best bank, even the golden child of Wall Street, can still screw up this badly. Right. Buck st- does stop with the CEO, but this does not rise to the level of requiring a resignation. Not even close. Well, so to James' point, is that part of why Jamie Dimon was sounding so angry on the conference call? Because he's really been the, you know, he's been the guy out in front challenging the Obama administration on the Volcker rule, and it seems like a mistake like this takes the bat out of his hands. Chris, I have a quote. He says, just because we were stupid doesn't mean anyone else was. And that's not an usual <laughs> quote you get from a Wall Street CEO. I mean, he's, he is defensive about that, yes. Um, as uh, you guys have indicated, uh, there are other big banks that play this game, uh, Citigroup, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs. Um, for investors who are looking to get exposure to the financial sector but just don't really have the stomach to wake up and see this kind of bet go bad for their stock. What do you what do you tell them, Ron? I've always stayed away from financials uh, as investments because I never thought I could fully understand what, what isn't on the balance sheet um, and fully understand the business. But if you do want to play that, and I've done this personally, I've done it through an ETF, a broad-based financial ETF, or a mutual fund that's focused on the financial services industry. That way, you don't really have all your eggs in that one basket. James? Yeah, U.S. Bancorp is a little bit smaller than these big banks, and it's a lot less uh, of, of a a Wall Street type of bank. Another option is to go Canadian. I like Bank of Nova Scotia. This is a, a, an investment recommendation in my newsletter. There, there are some good banks abroad that, that aren't as uh, uh, embroiled in this stuff. Joe? Yeah, I think JP Morgan looks interesting. You know, you want to be greedy when others are fearful. fearful. And right now, JPM is selling at a bigger discount to tangible book value than it has for 96% of the last decade. It doesn't get a lot you more You just made that up, that. didn't you? I, I checked it out this morning. I saw a I graph. Remember. He showed me I a did. graph. Okay. Yeah. Show does his I'm impressed. Homework. I'm impressed. Yeah. Fragrance maker Cody is making another bid for Avon. Uh, Ron, the mm. bid is now up to $10.7 billion, and the new wrinkle here is that $2.5 billion is going to be financed by Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it changes anything about the deal. Berkshire gives the deal, let's call it credibility, for lack of a better word. But still, if the uh, management of Avon thinks it's not a good deal for shareholders, if they think it's still a deal that's undervalued, they're not going to accept it, even if some of the equity capital happens to be coming from Berkshire. And I think that's that's what this is going to hinge on. And I believe they really only have until Monday to respond, and then the deal is off the table. Of course, it could come back. You know, you, you never know. Um, so I don't really think the Berkshire part of this is that big a deal. Um. Joe, what do you think? We have a new CEO at Avon, Sherilyn McCoy, who came over from Johnson & Johnson. And as we've talked about before, Avon is a company that has a lot of challenges. On some level, should she just take Warren Buffett's money and run? I think so. I'd say take out on that golden parachute for a quick few months' work and move on to a new job. I mean, she could move into another CEO slot pretty easily. Um, speaking of Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting took place last weekend. As, as we've said before, it's Woodstock for investors. Joe Mager, you were there. Which it was is crazy. <laughs> Uh, what was the big takeaway for you? Uh, a couple takeaways. One is that Warren and Charlie are still going strong. I think a lot of people were worried about how Buffett would be feeling and just seeing how he would handle himself, given the you know the backdrop of his uh, having prostate cancer and taking treatments on that starting in July. You know, he's a human encyclopedia, and it still showed. He 
had plenty of energy, was very sharp, and I think anyone walked out feeling confident in that. And the second thing is that Buffett gave a little more color on how he thinks about valuing Berkshire. The stock's underperformed over the last three, four years, and it's outperformed the market by vast sums over the long, over the longer time horizons, and people have been disappointed. But I think when you hear him talk about the valuation and how strong he is talking about how cheap the stock is, that's really interesting, and it's tough to ignore when you've got the best investor in history talking about the stock he knows best, saying it's cheap. Uh, Ron, one of the things that Buffett mentioned during his marathon Q&A session on Saturday, he made reference to a $22 billion acquisition that Berkshire Hathaway got close to making just in the very recent past and ended up not pulling the trigger on. and he did go on to signal that you know he's he's looking to, he's looking to spend. Um, did that get you thinking at all about yeah. like if not what was the company? As I think a lot of people were trying to figure out, but it, even just what industry is Berkshire Hathaway looking into? Definitely curious as to what it could be. My guess is it's some sort of uh, capital intensive infrastructure industrial type company. Um, on one hand, it, it's scary. That's a lot of money to to put into one place. But on the other hand. He's been telling us for a long time now that he's looking for large acquisitions and he's going to put that capital to work rather than return it to shareholders. So we shouldn't be surprised when when he comes up with with something like that. But twenty two billion is a big number. <laughs> so would your elephant gun be similarly loaded if you were in Buffett's shoes? Uh, I think I personally would be paying a dividend. Okay. Coming up, the latest earnings from big tech and the video gaming industry. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Joe Mager, James Early, and Ron Gross. Shares of tech giant Cisco Systems down 8% on Thursday after the company's latest earnings. Uh, Joe Mager, CEO John Chambers puts some of the blame on the economic situation in Europe. You buying that? A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. Because I've been seeing that from a lot of companies that I've been following. But at Cisco, I think it really just cuts to an execution problem. They talked about longer sales cycles on the conference call. Sometimes that's, you know, IT managers are waiting to make a big ticket purchase. But the the other hand is it's probably just they're not actually selling things well. And when you listen to the Intel call, I that's think, a problem if your business is selling things. <laughs> yeah, so picky. Uh, Intel isn't running into those same problems, and they are addressing essentially the same enterprise market. Yeah. So, well, Intel's products are a little cheaper though, right? Which might that's make, true. That's uh, true. Yeah, it's it's not apples and oranges. It's or it's not apples and apples. It's apples and you know pink lady Kiwi? apples. Yeah, it's <laughs> pink a slight, lady apple. It's a slight huh. difference, but is that your favorite apple? I'm a big fan of the pink lady. Really? Okay. It's a great apple. I'm a Macintosh guy. Uh, Electronic Gala. Arts. <laughs> Nobody cares what your favorite apple is. Electronic Arts' latest earnings came in higher than analysts were expecting, but that was overshadowed by the news of a big drop in the number of subscribers for the EA game Star Wars The Old Republic. James Early, what do you think? So, so Electronic Arts made a big effort to copy, you know, World of Warcraft is is the Activision product, right? Yeah. Subscription-based game, uh, very popular. So they put a ton of money into developing a Star Wars New Republic game that, that subscriptions for fell 24%. Uh, th- there were a lot of weird glitches in the game. People were getting stuck in the wall, disappearing <laughs> into the floor, then popping back up. Or you, you, you try to have your Sounds character cool. say a friendly dialogue, but then he insults the other character instead. Um, I was reading, it's pretty, it's people get this game sounds pretty fun, stuff. actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the game just didn't, didn't execute as well as they wanted it, and the results are down. 
Uh, Ron, Activision Blizzard also reporting this week. That's uh, a stock that you follow closely. Yeah. Um, uh, shares up more than 4% for the week, so I'm assuming it was a good quarter. It was a good quarter. They um, beat, beat estimates. They raised guidance. Um, they repurchased 22 million shares, which I think is a great uh, use of capital at the current stock price. This is a stock that really refuses to go anywhere. Um, but one day, we're hopeful, because they continue to put up really good numbers. Their new uh, Skylanders um, Product. They sold 30 million toys that are associated with this new game um, since the launch. Uh, that's amazing. Um, the Call of Duty franchise is good. World of Warcraft has stabilized. Three billion in cash, no debt. We love it. Why do you think the stock isn't really moving? Because this I seems I know. this seems like one of those businesses that uh, you know. To to the point James was making about electronic arts. I mean, it, it seems like in the video gaming industry. The stocks should respond to the basic numbers coming out, you know. So it's it's perfectly reasonable that EA shares are down on news that they're losing all these subscribers. Was well, the only guy in the office who's not an Activision fan. I think it boils down to concerns about how World of Warcraft is stagnant. It's not shrinking, but it's essentially stagnant. And the rest of the business is really kind of a studio production model. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like a movie. You have to come up with the next big thing, yeah. uh, although there is recurring revenue. And we're, we're thrilled that the gaming industry has moved towards this more of a subscription-based model. But you still need to come up with the next big blockbuster. And, and investors don't really love that. And as we touched on earlier in the week on our Market Foolery podcast, uh, Joe is not an Activision Blizzard fan, but he, he uh, loves Blizzard. At one time, was a fan of Farmville. See, a Dairy, <laughs> Dairy Queen Blizzard fan. Mm. Uh, Walt Disney Company's second quarter profits up twenty one percent, thanks to strong numbers from the theme parks and the cable TV channels. Ron, what do you think? You know, even with the John Carter debacle, yes. and it was a debacle. Um, they continue to post great numbers. This is a stock I sold too soon. Um, I just still do want it personally. However, uh, my children actually own it. Um, Avengers uh, doing doing great numbers. Um, as you said, the parks up fifty three percent on the operating income line. That's pretty impressive. Um, and ESPN and ABC continue to do well. So the company really, really um, continues to put up great numbers, and, and the stock is responding. Have you seen Avengers? I haven't. I was going to drag my wife, because uh, it was my birthday on Saturday night, oh. and I typically drag her to a superhero movie. Last year, it was Green Lantern. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 uh, you might have trouble getting under your I let her time. off the hook this year. We didn't Happy make birthday. it. Thank you very much. Um, just to close out on Disney, I mean, as you mentioned, Ron, very diverse business. Um, is the theme parks chunk of their business, is that the most undervalued part? Because it seems like particularly ESPN and the cable TV, that's that's the one that they're depending on every quarter. Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word undervalued. That business isn't isn't as important to me as the other pieces of their okay. business. But they do have some interesting growth things coming. Shanghai Disneyland, for example, is right now under construction. We'll see how that turns out. It's supposed to be pretty a uh, pretty nice growth driver. But I, I focus on the other parts of the business more. Okay. Uh, we will wrap up this segment with the stocks that are on our radar. We'll bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass for a question. Each one of you, Ron, you're up first. What's your stock this week? I'm going to circle back to Cisco, CSCO. Two weeks ago, before before the stock got smacked, an investor that, that I respect very much um, pitched me on it and recommended it. And I said, well, I don't I don't get those technology. I pulled a buffet. I said, I don't get those technology companies. <laughs> but you know, I think networking, I think we, I can understand this if I dive in a, a bit. And it's only four and a half times cash flow right now, a 12 times PE ratio. It could be cheap. And if I can spend the time, it might be interesting. And the ticker symbol? CSCO. Steve? Ron, can you explain what happened with Cisco and Flipcam? 
I think <laughs> I wish I could. Um, I am an owner of Flipcam, and I think it was gangbusters for a while, and it just didn't didn't do what it wanted to do. It wasn't the space that they really needed to focus on, and they said, you know what, we're gonna just we're gonna cut and run. James Early, your stock this week? Chris Textainer is is a, a recommendation actually of my income investor service several months back. The ticker is TGH. They basically own a lot of shipping containers. You know the metal. Kind of like oblong boxes you, you put on on trucks, and they're, they're inter- intermodal. They call it. You can put it on a, a tractor trailer, put it on a train, put it on a ship, and, and they lease them out. So it's it's helpful to be it's helpful to be big. It's you can own a lot because that way you can match one guy's shipping route with someone else's to return the container back. You can you can involve the military. So it's this kind of weird business, somewhat capital intensive, pay a decent yield, uh, and and there's not not a ton of competition either. And when they're done with these, is one of my favorite parts. There is a big industry buying these used shipping containers for a couple thousand bucks each and building modular homes out of them. It's like an eco trend. Okay, so a potential housing play for you there too, Steve. What do you think? Um, my question would be about oil prices. So it seems like the shipping industry gets really whacked when oil prices rise. Is that uh, correct? The, the shipping industry is economically sensitive in general. Yeah, and oil prices affect that. But this is this is one step. The container business is one step removed from the pure shippers. In other words, if I'm actually shipping cargo, my stock price is probably more volatile. If I'm just leasing the container, I'm a little bit less sensitive. So if you want shippers but without quite as much fun, containers could be your option. And don't forget his favorite part. The yeah. economic, the, the eco-friendly. Yeah, part. if you have an amenable homeowners association, you <laughs> could build go. a house for for ten grand. It's not <laughs> they right. do anything three hundred square feet wood. I don't know if they go that far. It's okay. just a metal box, pretty much <laughs> what it is. So. Joe Mager, your stock. Yeah, Mark Hell. I saw the executive speak this past weekend while in Omaha. It's basically a specialty insurance company in the mold of a mini Berkshire Hathaway. So they focus on specialty insurance for things like boats, which most people won't insure, or bars. They get great premiums on that, turn around and invest the money in long-term businesses. It's attractively valued. I like it a lot. Steve? Um, what is Markel's most unique thing that they insure? I would say bars are a pretty good one. There's not a lot of competition for that. I think they do weddings as well. The ballet studios yeah. are interesting. Horse dude ranches, uh, that a kind dude of ranch. stuff. Yeah. Interesting. The dude ranch market. What are they insuring exactly? The dudes? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, accidents happen. All kinds of problems go wrong. You like accidents dudes. happen on the Dude Ranch and three stocks. Steve, you got one you like? Um, Markel, I've heard wonderful, wonderful things about, uh, but I do like James's shipping company as well. Cisco, I think I've owned in the past and have sold. It has not quite worked out for me. But <laughs> <All right. laughs> thanks, right. Steve. Ron Gross, James Early, Joe Maker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Coming up, we will talk about oil, Exxon Mobil, and the man they call Iron Ass with award-winning journalist Steve Cole. With plenty of money. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Before the money started Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Steve Cole has won the Pulitzer Prize on two occasions, most recently for his 2004 book about the CIA entitled Ghost Wars. His new book is Private Empire, Exxon Mobil, and American Power. And Steve joins me now. Steve, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, what got you interested in writing not just about the oil industry, but ExxonMobil in particular? Well, I was inspired by a book called The Prize that Dan Jurgen brought out uh, 20 or 30 years ago about the era of expansion and discovery in the global oil industry. And after 9-11, working on Ghost Wars and other projects about America and uh, the Middle East, I thought it was time to go back to the subject of oil, but it, now in an era of constraint and limits and and violence. And 
once I started down that path, I thought I should choose a single company to tell the story. And for the United States, ExxonMobil was it. It's the largest corporation headquartered in the United States now and the most durable uh, oil company that we've had over the whole 20th century. So it became a way to tell a larger story. I think uh, a lot of people, when they hear ExxonMobil, they think about the Exxon Valdez and that whole incident. Um, one of the, the things that you rightly touch on in your book, how did the Valdez accident, how did that whole episode affect ExxonMobil? How did it change the company? Well, it shocked them uh, as, of course, uh, they lost their reputation. They had expensive settlements to endure internally they came to the conclusion that they had allowed their operating discipline and their um, internal management practices to slip. That uh, shouldn't have been the case, that the captain of a ship carrying that much oil could have had drunk driving arrests on his record and not been taken off the ship. Something was wrong. So they undertook these sweeping uh, reforms to try to wring out human fallibility from every aspect of their daily operations, to try to idiot-proof their global systems as much as possible and to automate them. And they developed a system of interlocking kind of manuals and rule regimes that became known as the Operations Integrity Management System, OIMS. If you go to work at ExxonMobil, you will get to know OIMS right away. It's a series of binders that tell you what to do about just about everything. And uh, so they really tightened up. And the leader of the company at that time, Lee Raymond, essentially saw the crisis that the Exxon Valdez created as an opportunity to shake up what he thought was a, a pretty entrenched bureaucracy. One of the things you touch on in the book, and, and it obviously wraps into the Valdez accident, and, and that's this whole notion of reputation, corporate reputation. Um, and one of the questions that gets raised at ExxonMobil is essentially, well, should we even care about this? Um, uh, to what extent do you think ExxonMobil should care or does care about their reputation? Yeah, it's a fascinating question and one that I, I tried to poke at in different ways during the research. I think, first of all, they are very unpopular. They know they're unpopular. They're smart people. They can read their own polling data. One of the conclusions they've reached is that their unpopularity with the American public has as much to do with the state of gasoline prices on any given day as it does with their own corporate performance. Since they can't actually control gasoline prices, uh, since they're set on a world market, uh, then they're basically unable to control the dial of their popularity going up and down. That led them to sort of think, well, then it doesn't matter. I'm not sure they're right about that, because ultimately they're a science organization, a technology organization, and their business uh, viability over 20 or 30 years looking out will depend on um, their ability to retain an edge in in geology and other important sciences in the oil business. And to do that, they have to be able to attract and retain the very best talent uh, in the world and in the United States. And it's hard to do that if when people go home to their Thanksgiving table and say where they work, you know, all their cousins suck in their breath or, or uh, you know, make them, make them feel badly about it. And also, they lose a lot of jury verdicts because they're so unpopular, they basically can't go to a jury trial without being guaranteed that they're starting out behind. And while they often just persist and overturn jury verdicts on appeal, it's not a great thing to be, be that unloved. Well, and as you said, I mean, this is a company full of some very smart people. I love that one of the exercises they undertake is sort of looking through history at the popularity of oil companies, because at, at, at some point, 
the idea is raised, hey, let's just find out when oil companies were popular and had good reputations, and, we can, and maybe that'll serve as a blueprint for us. Right, exactly. And then they look into history and they say, oh, well, it's hard to find an example <laughs> of when, when the oil industry was popular. And, you know, we're all, that's because on the street, uh, literally on the street, in our cars, when we go to fill up our gas tanks, we're confronted by a price of a almost utility energy service that, that we don't have any control over. It's associated with a company that is a source of great concentrated power, and we're trapped in our cars. Uh, so it's sort of not surprising that Americans hold these big oil companies in, in suspicion. They're, they're kind of like a utility that isn't really accountable, and, uh, and we can't, in the energy economy we have, escape our kind of customer relationship with them. We don't really have a choice. Um, we were talking about sort of uh, ExxonMobil and, and their own polling about gas prices affecting their own popularity, and certainly they can't be alone in that regard. I mean, I have to believe that the likes of, of Chevron and, and Royal Dutch Shell and BP, they're, they're probably seeing the same thing. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the cost of gasoline? Well, probably in the public's mind, uh, it would be natural to assume that these companies are in the retail gasoline business because it's a great money maker, and you know they might they they make a few cents uh, at the gas station. But the irony is that this is the least profitable part of their business. And the book describes a board meeting that ExxonMobil had in 2005, where Lee Raymond, as he was departing his long run as chief executive, basically said to the board, "Why don't we just get out of the retail gasoline business?" It's the place where we make our customers miserable by associating our brand with high prices that we can't control. A, B, we don't really make any money. 80% or more of our profits come from the wellhead, where you produce and sell oil wholesale, in effect, or from the chemicals business. He said, why don't we just become like DuPont and and take our signs down? It's not as crazy crazy an idea as it sounds, except these brands, Exxon and Mobil, have a lot of value. They have a lot of presence in American society, and you can't just snuff them out because you don't like being unpopular. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Steve Cole, author of the new book, Private Empire, Exxon Mobil and American Power. There are some fascinating characters in your book, and I say characters because obviously they're not fictional characters, these are real people, but they are larger-than-life characters, and uh, one you've mentioned a couple of times, Lee Raymond, who was the CEO at Exxon Mobil uh, until 2005, with maybe one of the greatest nicknames in the history of American business. H- how did Lee Raymond get the nickname Iron Ass? <laughs> By being a hard character, basically. I mean, you know, he's the, he's the sort of man uh, who a biographer loves because he's very comfortable in his own skin. He's, he is a big character, but he's also not trying to hide from the world. He's very direct, and uh, he's a lifelong friend, or most of his adult life, a friend of Dick Cheney, and neighbors in Dallas when Cheney was running Halliburton, and they're similar characters, you know, not really worried about their own personal popularity, but full of confidence and conviction about how the world should be organized. And and in his case, he basically um, was a very effective leader of a very large corporation, but also someone who bruised a lot of his colleagues and who was very blunt, especially uh, when challenged or when he thought somebody had asked a stupid question, he would go after them, whether they were a Wall Street analyst or a journalist or a, a fellow manager. In, in private, he was you know, quite a charming character, and, and he didn't go after people who were way down the food chain. He was polite to his you know, 
corporate pilots and that sort of thing. But if you were an executive and you asked a question that he thought was dumb, man, he would just rip your head off. And that was kind of the culture because it was a, it was a lot of sort of Marine veterans and a, a sort of a military ethos still that, that pervades the place, and you're just supposed to be able to take it. ExxonMobil CEO now is Rex Tillerson. How does he differ from Lee Raymond? Well, by 2005, I think the board of directors and um, other constituents of the company sort of felt like, well, Lee Raymond was a great leader, but he really um, drove us a little too hard, and he damaged our reputation by some of his um, communications in public about climate, about which he was very, very skeptical that there was such a thing as climate change. And he kind of uh, created a tone that ExxonMobil wanted to change in the next uh, iteration. So they on the one hand, they thought their business model was working great and that the systems that Raymond had put in place were working great. They didn't want to change their model, but they wanted to change their tone. So they hired Rex Tillerson in part for that purpose. He came up from the ranks. But he's a, a more affable character. His father was an administrator in the Boy Scouts of America. He has a kind of Boy Scout ethos about him, and uh, he communicates very well. And So the idea was to put a different face and to tell ExxonMobil's story a little more gently and a little more inclusively than they'd done before. Now, you know, what does that get you in this world? It does get you something. The oil industry is heavily regulated. It's unpopular, as we've talked about. Uh, They need partners. They need partners in government. They need partners in business. And so it's not just about public relations. Coming up, more with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Steve Cole. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, talking with Steve Cole, author of the new book, Private Empire, Exxon Mobil and American Power. Exxon Mobil recently announced it's going to spend $185 billion over the next five years to find more oil and natural gas. And I want to focus on the natural gas piece of that. Uh, what are they betting on, and how is it working out so far? Well, in this world of constraints and limits, um, one of the paths forward is to shift their ownership of uh, oil and gas toward gas because there's more of it coming online in the free market countries of the West where they're freest to operate and to, and to own things without political complication. This is the rise of unconventional gas in the United States, so-called the gas that's extracted by fracking techniques. And They were not a player for most of the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, None of the super majors really saw this coming, but they did what they have the capacity uniquely to do, which was once they they saw it was here, they bought their way in. They bought the largest producer of unconventional gas in the United States, XTO, in 2010. So now in the United States, ExxonMobil is the largest producer of unconventional natural gas, and they're making a big bet on that looking out over 30 or 40 years. Now, the problem may be that as low gas prices today reflect, producing gas may not prove to be as profitable on a per unit basis as as oil production has been. So that that'll be a challenge. Um, but they see themselves as a long term player who can always extract extra value compared to their competitors. So they're they're really committed to this direction. One of their competitors in the natural gas space is Chesapeake Energy. And obviously, they're uh, a company involved in fracking as well. Um, I read a quote from an interview that you gave recently, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, um, but it it seemed, uh, my interpretation of, of your quote was that fracking is going to be 
a bigger PR challenge for ExxonMobil than the Valdez accident was. First, do I have that correctly? And second, if I do, why do you think that? Well, I think I may, whatever I might have said, I think I meant something along those lines. And basically, it's because already we can see that um, American communities and environmental groups and politicians and others are concerned about how fracking might uh, damage American land or pose risks to drinking water supplies or induce earthquakes. And I think an honest reading of this emerging and very important and potentially, you know, very constructive, um, positive industry in the United States, an honest reading of it is it's in early days. There's a lot about these techniques that are not known. There are a lot of different operators who do it in different ways. Not everybody is ExxonMobil in terms of their commitment to high standards and operating discipline. And the regulatory scheme and the politics around that scheme is just starting to take shape. So if you want to uh, have a pathway to a healthy industry in a country where our politics is so divided, nobody trusts anybody, you're going to have to be very skillful at your public relations and political strategy. And I guess the question that I have looking out is whether ExxonMobil has the flexibility, the trust strategy, the communication skills to navigate this. They've made a huge investment in it as a business. Now they've got to win the politics, and I think that's going to be a challenge. I'm curious uh, what, if any, parallels you see between ExxonMobil and Apple, um, because certainly there, you know, uh, when you look at Lee Raymond and Steve Jobs, and then you look at CEOs who came after them in Rex Tillerson and Tim Cook, um, there seems to be a parallel there in in sort of uh, a CEO. Uh, f- who is appropriate for the times um, and and is uh, a bit of a departure from the one who came before. Uh, I'm also curious uh, if you think that people at ExxonMobil got upset on some level when Apple surpassed ExxonMobil in market cap. Yeah, that, well, I think that's an interesting observation about the CEOs and a good one. I hadn't thought of that before, but I have thought about the comparison uh, more broadly and it's interesting because uh, they have similarities. They're both very closed systems. They're both uh, very command management oriented in some respects. Um, neither of them has a reputation for being great partners. Uh, both are very determined and, and both, as you point out, have been led at times by very uh, ambitious and hard-driving CEOs. Um, and yet they're they're also different in the sense that you know, ExxonMobil is a very systems-driven um, collective in which individual creativity is really not um, cultivated. And at Apple, the opposite is true. And, you you know, if you read the biography, the recent biography of Jobs, you know, his passion for creativity and for individuals who could think in wide-open ways comes through, you know, pretty strongly. And, and you wouldn't find much of that at ExxonMobil. But I'm sure ExxonMobil, yeah, they noticed when Apple passed them in stock market capitalization, and I'm sure they did not um, celebrate that moment. The, the interesting thing about ExxonMobil's size and durability is I went back and looked at the Fortune 500 lists all the way forward from you know the post-war period, 1950 on. They've always been in the top five. It's sort of sad to look back and see all the companies that have disappeared from that status, like 
U.S. deal. And if you think now, Apple and ExxonMobil as number one and two, and you ask in 50 years which one's most likely to still be in the top five, I would not pick Apple. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Steve Cole. His new book is Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power. What has been your biggest shift in thinking about the oil and gas industry since researching this book? Well, I think I knew that it was big and complicated, but uh, I feel like I now understand just how intractable and embedded the fossil fuel economy is um, on a global basis. That the only, the biggest reason why we as a society would want to move away from oil and gas is if we take the risk of global warming seriously, um, because that risk um, is the main justification for imposing costs on ourselves now in order to get out of uh, the energy economy we have. There's not a consensus about that. I actually have the view that the risks are serious in my reading of the science, and I would be willing to bear costs to make that transition. But the point is only to make a transition away from an oil economy on a global basis, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, it is enormous. And just thinking about the rising uh, middle classes in China and India and their consumption of fuel just to drive their cars to the store, the way ordinary middle classes all around the world live the same lives, want the same washing machines, the way that that energy economy is embedded means that it's going to be very difficult to change it. The book is Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power. It is a great read. It has got fascinating characters in it. Steve Cole, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Just in the minute before we wrap up the show this week, Columbia University is publishing a book next month, The Best Business Writing of 2012. Steve Broidel, let me just uh, let me just tell you about a few of the people whose writing will be featured in this book. The Best Business Writing of 2012, Stephen Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize-winning business writer from The Washington Post. Uh, Warren Buffett, you've heard of him. Yes, I have. Um, our own colleague, Morgan Housel. That's some nice company, isn't it? Absolutely. That's terrific news. That's uh, So, the best business writing of 2012, uh, Morgan Housel, Warren Buffett, Steve Perlstein. And that's, honestly, that's a little bit of an honor for Buffett and Perlstein, too. I agree. Morgan's to be a great there. guy. Um, you can check out uh, Morgan's writing on fool.com. You can also check out his latest ebook on Amazon. It's just 99 cents. It's called 50 Years in the Making, The Great Recession and Its Aftermath. That's by Morgan Housel on Amazon. It's an ebook for 99 cents. Just check it out. It's great stuff. That's it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.